Before we dive into this week's episode, I have to tell you about my new obsession, which is booze-free cocktails by Curious Elixirs. So after my family Euro trip to Germany and France, there was a lot of champagne and beer ingested, and I knew I had to make a change. I came back feeling so slow, lethargic, not motivated, and that was just not exactly how I wanted to start feeling in 2022. And I started taking inventory of what was the culprit. It was 100% alcohol. I immediately started looking into booze-free cocktails because I still wanted the taste and feel, and voila, Curious Elixirs popped up. Curious Elixirs are booze-free craft cocktails infused with adaptogens to help you unwind. Okay, incredible. Whether you're sober or sober curious, toasting your team or sipping solo, Curious Elixirs is on a mission to create the world's most sophisticated cocktails without the alcohol. Inspired by classics like the Aperol Spritz, the Spicy Margarita, and the Negroni, every Curious Elixir is handcrafted with organic ingredients and no refined sugar. Their ingredients include adaptogens and plants that benefit your body, helping you relax and de-stress without the hangover. They offer one-time orders as well as subscribers-only Curious Cocktail Club to ensure your fridge stays stocked. You can order Curious Elixirs online and have it shipped directly to your door at CuriousElixirs.com. I've been trying them for the past few weeks, and it is insane how much it truly tastes like a booze-free craft cocktail. My favorite is number three, which tastes like a cucumber Collins. I drink it at night, and it does feel like I'm unwinding and de-stressing, which is incredible. And then I can wake up without the hangover and actually be a productive member of society. So again, head to the link in my show notes to check them out or go to CuriousElixirs.com to try some today. Your dreams can be your reality. You all, time isn't real. Okay, that is fucking crazy. Spirituality, manifestation, travel, money, entrepreneurship. Welcome to In My Non-Expert Opinion. I'm your host, Chelsea Wright. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to In My Non-Expert Opinion. I'm your host, Chelsea Reith, and I have a confession to share with you all. I am quite a hopeless romantic. I love love. I love romance. I love hearing about partners that built their wives, towers and statues and castles. I love Disney movies. I love all that stuff. I love the fairy tale ending. I love reading about love stories. I am obsessed with love and romance. And when I was younger, I definitely had a different view on it. And I was kind of like Disney movie vibes. Like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to be a princess. And this guy is going to pick me up in his carriage and we're going to ride into the sunset and have no problems. And as soon as, you know, you put a ring on your finger and you get married, that's it. You live blissfully in happiness ever after. Very uh, delusional a little bit about what it took to have an adult relationship. And when I turned 30 and in my last relationship, I honestly just feel like I grew the fuck up. I was like, wow, it takes a lot to commit to a person, not only for the rest of your life, but even day to day living with them. You are integrating your lives, your personalities, your beliefs, your values, your dynamics, like everything is all of a sudden intertwined and you're trying to become a unit. You're trying to become a partnership. And I feel like when I was in my last relationship, especially during a lockdown, it taught me a lot about myself and how I was a partner in a relationship. And it also taught me what I expected out of a relationship. And it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies. It was clear, honest communication, you know, direct communication, even when it hurt someone's feelings. It was making sure you understood someone's triggers. It was understanding that you don't need to be right in every argument. Maybe you don't need to solve every argument right there. There were so many things I learned in my last relationship. And honestly, I will do a podcast episode soon about it. But my whole point in saying this was that I just learned getting into a relationship and living together or putting a ring on your finger, that doesn't all of a sudden automatically dissolve communication issues and triggers and wounded, you know, territory that you're that you're navigating when you get into a relationship. And so I've been really honestly like studying relationships and adult communication and 
you know, understanding that a relationship isn't just about making the other person happy 24 seven and living, you know, a Disney fairy tale movie every single day in and out. So I've been learning a lot about anxious attachment and secure communication. And that was a big focal point in my therapy sessions was, you know, adult relationships and speaking up for myself and my needs and understanding what I wanted and my value system. And it's just been a lot of honestly, like being a student of romance and love and partnership. As I've been studying this, this amazing woman, Brianne Davis, reached out to me and she wrote this book and it's a novel actually called The Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, A Seductively Wild Ride to Self-Love. And we connected and I was like, wow, this is really interesting because I feel like I've been studying a lot of this stuff about sex and love and you know, there's so much more to partnerships too. the courting phase, right? Do I, is it weird if I sleep with him on the first date? Is he going to ghost me? What if I wait 10 dates and he ghosts me? Do I text him back first? What if I don't text him back? Is he going to think I'm not interested? Just spiraling out of control. And honestly, I've had to take a step back from dating and like really just focus on myself. So when I heard the title of this book and saw that Brienne was actually writing from her own experience, I was like, oh my gosh, we absolutely have to talk. There is so much that I want to pick your brain about. So I'm really excited for this week's episode because we are talking to Brianne Davis and she is a former sex and love addict. We talk about with her experience, the addiction, the difference between this and attachment styles and codependency, navigating this type of addiction and recovering, finding an adult healthy partnership and actually sustaining one. And I actually even asked her about the Me Too movement in Hollywood because she worked in Hollywood during that time. So I asked her, you know, what role did that play in this type of addiction? Like, did Hollywood fuel this type of thing? And she's very transparent. She's very honest. I really love talking to her because she's also such a bright light and such a joy. And she knows that her vulnerability is going to help anyone listening. I'm really excited about this episode because I learned a lot. Like, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Before I talked to her, I was like, "Mm, is sex and love addict real? Or is that just an excuse for people to like say they want to have more sex or go cheat on their partner? And I ask her these questions. I ask her a lot from a skeptical point of view. And I ask her the questions that I know some of you are probably thinking like, okay, well, what's what actually is this? Like, is this real? How do you move through it? Why isn't this something that's talked about more? So I think you'll enjoy it. It's very interesting. It's all about her novel as well. So she pulled from her life experience and wrote this novel. And what's really interesting about this novel is that it obviously was drawn on her own life experiences. And there's some pretty wild tales in there from being mistaken for a prostitute at the Hotel Bel Air to botching a threesome attempt with an A-list celebrity. There's a lot that goes down in this novel, and you should definitely check it out because it is a wild ride. It's hilarious. It's inspiring. It's shocking. It's just something that I really find you'll learn a lot from, like I did. So again, check it out. It's called Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. You can find it on Amazon. Obviously, I will link it in the show notes, but I'm excited for you to all hear from Brienne. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to let you know one-on-one podcast coaching is officially open for enrollment. I am so excited. This is honestly one of my favorite core offers because I love seeing people launch a podcast. I have six spots open for March. I just had several students graduate and I'm taking on six people through the end of March. So there's three-month packages as well as six-month packages. The three-month one is probably best if you're wanting to just start a podcast and learn the basics of sustaining one and keeping it up, learning how to strategically title your episodes, how to pitch guests, how to edit and record, and how to get your podcast really optimized when it's launched. That's probably the three-month program that you want to take. The six-month program is for sustaining, growing, and monetizing. So if you're ready to really commit to this and you want to learn how to keep growing as well as monetize in different ways, then the six-month package is probably for you. So I'm going to link that application in my show notes, and you can always DM me at Chelsea Rife or check out my website, ChelseaRife.com. But I'm so excited about this because not only are you going to get podcast coaching, you get mindset coaching as well. That's why I call myself a mindset and podcast coach, because I know it's more than just the tech or the strategy or how to record and edit. A lot of us are dealing with, you know, negative thoughts like, 
who's going to listen to this? Or I don't like the sound of my voice, or I'm not creative. I don't really have great ideas. That is all false. Those are not facts. That's not true. And I bring my background of mindset coaching into podcast coaching. I would actually say 70% of our coaching calls are focused on mindset. And then the rest is strategy and making sure that your podcast is set up for success when you launch. I am so stoked because I'm bringing my background as well from broadcast journalism and reporting and hosting to my master's program, digital media and storytelling. I'm bringing you all those skills. So titling episodes, pitching guests, and really nailing an interview, understanding the art of storytelling. This is all stuff you'll learn with me in podcast coaching. So if you've been wanting to launch a podcast and you've been seeing how much investment money is going into audio because every company is seeing the value of podcasting, or you're just like, wow, I really want to express myself in a different way, then I definitely encourage you to apply for one-on-one podcast coaching. Again, I will link this in my show notes or DM me at Chelsea Breck if you have any questions, and I'm so excited to help six of you launch your podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited to be joined by Brianne Davis today. We are talking about your book, which I am so freaking excited about. Can you tell us what the title is? Because it is a pretty explicit and shocking title if you're just browsing through the bookstore. Oh my God. Yes. It's the longest title too. Everybody's like, what? How do you say it? But it's called Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. It's the longest title. (laughs) (laughs) I love it though, because it's so direct in what it is. So it actually brings me to my first question. What is a sex and love addict? That's like my ultimate favorite question. It's, it's, I like to break it down so easy that anybody can understand. So sex and love addiction is when we are addicted to people. We snort and drink people, attention, validation, stimulation, getting high off the energy of somebody else. So the sex addiction part is, I would say, you know, one night stand, swiping left, right, looking for that next hit, you know, cheating on your partner, being flirting and intriguing out in the world, getting that sexual like high and using your sexuality as control and manipulation over another person. And that could be, you know, porn addiction is on that side. Masturbation, when you're feeling a feeling and you go into your sexuality instead of staying with that feeling. Then the love addiction side is, it's the more complicated one. It's the one people like don't really like to talk about as much, but it's going after the unavailable person, going back to toxic relationships, being unavailable yourself and turning sexually anorexic where you shut down emotionally and sexually. It is the flirting, the intriguing, going into fantasy, having unrealistic expectations of a person. And when they do not add up to what your mind thinks, then you like hurt them. So it's like a combination of both. Usually people are, um, they say more women are, are love addicts and more men are sex addicts, but that's actually not true. Uh, Mm. that's just a misconception. I have to say, you know, I've been in the program sex and love addicts anonymous for 12 years now and it's 50, 50 it's men and women. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. That's really interesting that you found it's 50-50 because Mm -hmm. like you just said, I think people make a lot of assumptions about who falls under what, but I'm actually curious, do you identify with both and how did you find that out? Yeah, I, I definitely am a sex and love addict. I definitely have used my sexuality to manipulate and control other people as a power mechanism because inside I felt so powerless, I guess I would say, so empty, always looking outside of myself for that like soulmate, that person to fix me, that person to complete me because that's what society t- tells us. I mean, just turn on the TV. It's like, Where's that person, how you dress, what you drive to find that person that's going to love you forever. And so when I found out, I mean, I knew I had a warped sense of what relationships look like just from my upbringing. And I really talk about that in chapter five, six, and seven in the book, but I just didn't have the tools for healthy relationships. So when I looked at the opposite sex and the person I'm attracted to, I did not want to be intimate with them. I was terrified of intimacy. I was terrified of being abandoned, of not being loved because inside I didn't really love myself or understand myself. So I definitely used my sexuality when I hit, you know, puberty. I definitely flirted, intrigued, 
masturbated, didn't saw porn way too early. Um, saw that if a woman wore her sexuality on the outside, that was like a form of currency in the world. Um, but I never had a one night stand. I've not had many sexual partners. So you can be a sex and a sex and love addict and a sex addict and not, you know, just walk around trying to screw everybody in the world because that's not what it is. Um, but yeah, so I knew from the get-go, I was a sex and love addict. I did the 40 questions. I mean, I talk about the questionnaire in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. There's these 40 self-diagnosed questionnaire and you can go on and they say if you get more than five yeses, you might have this problem. Wow. I really Mm -hmm. want to drill into the point that you just made of it's not just going out there and having one night stands every weekend Mm -hmm. because as someone who is unfamiliar with this world, and I'm sure many of my listeners you you see the word addict and then you see the word sex and love. So you just immediately make a short-sighted assumption that, oh, they are just trying to screw people 24-7 left and right. So what was it when on your discovery, I know you talked about the 40 questions, but what if someone's hearing this right now and they're like, wait, I might be a sex and love addict. Do you recommend them to take that questionnaire too? Oh my God, that questionnaire is like the holy grail. It will tell you clearly if you have this problem. But for me, the main gist was I was going from relationship to relationship to relationship, sometimes overlapping them and cheating because I would be with someone for a year, a year and a half, and then that high would wear off, that falling in love, the butterflies, the excitement. And soon as that wore off, I was like, oh, this is not real love. This is, that's supposed to last forever. Like I had this warped sense, you know, I think growing up like a latchkey kid and like growing up with television and film and then becoming an actress, I was like, oh, this feeling has to stay forever. And when it wore off, I would find myself starting to have one foot out of the relationship, flirting with a guy at a coffee shop, flirting with the co-star, doing all these things. And then sooner or later, I would cross that line or I would drive my partner so crazy with my unavailability, they would break up with me. So then I could be free to go to the next person. And I just kept doing that over and over and over again. And I had this dark night of the soul moment where I was like, oh my God, am I going to be doing this the rest of my life? Am I going to be 80, going around, flirting, trying to get attention, getting people to DM me, getting likes on Instagram? Like all this stuff just came into my head. Am I going to always have one foot out of the relationship, one foot in, and never be connected to one person on this planet? Like that to me was so tragic. And that was that moment where I was like, it can't be everybody else not giving me what I need the common denominator is me. Wow. Yeah. And it it prompts the question of what's the difference between codependency and sex and love addiction, or is there one? I mean, honestly, they're so close. Like they almost overlap. There's a lot of codependency work in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. The codependency side can go to like family and friends. And so can the sex and love addiction go to family and friends. But the difference I would say is that, you know, you become so needed on someone else. You take on their emotions in the codependency. If someone's having a bad day, then you have a bad day. You're trying to fix somebody all the time. In sex and love addiction, it's really not about that. It's more you're using that person to fulfill a fantasy that you have. So it's not even really about them. They're just a mirror for you, what you Mm -hmm. want the energy to come at you. And a codependency is more like you're giving your energy to like fix them. Mm, But they definitely mesh. A lot of people in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous is in Codependency Anonymous too. Like they're very close. They're very close. Because it reminds me, I have a lot of friends that jump from relationship to relationship. And Mm -hmm. I'm always like, I wonder if, they've ever been single for more than a week. It's just quick to the next, to the next. And, you know, I don't know anything about it, codependency or sex and love addiction, but it, that's why I wanted to ask. So if someone's listening and they're like, I haven't been single in 10 years, maybe yeah. there is opportunity for self-reflection. I think that isn't a great thing to say. If you have not been single and you go from relationship to relationship, there's something in you that is always looking outside of yourself to complete you. And you have to pause and you have to see 
who are the people I'm choosing? Are they unavailable? And if I'm choosing unavailable people, people that cheat on me, don't show up, don't keep their word, all that stuff, then there's something in me that's unavailable. A lot of times I work with people that are with sex and love addicts or sex addicts, and I have to help them see that they are also part of the problem because they're usually a love addict trying to get this love avoidant to commit to them, but really they're not available too. This also reminds me of attachment theory. So anxious mm-hmm. attachment, avoidant and secure. Does that play a role at all in, in this work? Like, do they overlap too? Oh my God. It's so overlapping. I mean, <laughs> the, it is true, but it's like, we get attached to people that either remind us of our our trauma in our past, it's that pattern reenacting again. And it's like that toxic attachment, that that unavailable person who we call qualifiers. It's like the person that brings you to your knees. It's like your mm. drug, that, that person you're trying to get to love you. And once you get them to love you, you will be okay. And it's like, no, you're never going to be okay. Just, you know, so yeah, mm. they're all so enmeshing and that you work a lot on those things when you're in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous and stuff. Yeah. That's so interesting. And for anybody that doesn't know, attachment theory is really interesting. It's helped me a lot in understanding dating because sometimes when you're dating, you think you're crazy. Like, am I, don't, do I not understand what's happening? Am I missing signals? Am I missing red flags? And it's like, as we, you can see from this conversation, there's a lot of labels to these things and resources that can actually maybe help you. So I used to think some of these, you know, quote unquote labels were hurtful or like, you know, I don't want to be called a sex love addict. I don't want to be called anxious attached. And these are things that you don't necessarily need to broadcast, but they're things that help you understand yourself of, like you just said, you've been in a program, you have a community, you have people that you can talk to versus just living in your head. Like, am I crazy? What's going on here? Yeah. And if you do suffer from those things, that's okay. You probably didn't get the tools like I didn't. And what we have to do is go back to why we are the way we are. Look at it. Look at the trauma in our background. Look at the the environment we were raised in. Look if there's any addictive behavior in past generations. All that needs to be looked at to then say, okay, I'm an adult up now and I'm going to have healthy boundaries with my family, friends, partners. I'm going to look at those red flags. I'm not going to paint them green. You know, it's those things because people show you who they are in the first five to 10 minutes and you choose not to see them. You choose not, you choose to make an excuse for them. And it's like, you really have to look at when your mind is, I say it's spiritually sick. So Mm. if you are like, I can figure this out myself. I don't know why I keep going back to my horrible ex-boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever. I don't know why I keep getting the same relationships over and over again. I don't know why I get bored after being in a relationship for a while. I don't know why I detach from my sexuality while I'm being sexual. That's a huge one. And you can see like you have a spiritual sickness. Something wasn't learned and that you can not fix the problem with your head. <laughs> you usually have to go outside of yourself to get a better perception because if you could fix it, you wouldn't be doing it over and over again. Right. And you know what I find fascinating that you've referenced actually earlier in this conversation is Hollywood and the movies. Mm-hmm. My sister and I have been actually really talking about this where I'm learning a lot about dating. I just got out of a relationship four months ago and we dated for a year and I'm mm-hmm. getting back into the dating world. I just turned 30 earlier this year. And I feel like when I turned 30, I had this sense of adulthood of like, I am not fucking around anymore. Like I am <sighs> setting the boundaries. We're not, like you said, I'm not bleaching the red flags, but I still have this warped sense of what relationships are. And my mm-hmm. sister is going through the same thing. And we're like, where are we getting this from? And I'm like, I think it's the movies. Like, you know, everything always works out happily ever after. There's no fighting. There's no arguments. There's no miscommunication. And so we think, oh, if you get in an argument, well, that's it. You got to end the relationship. Or, wow, they're not, you know, putting you on a throne every day. Guess they don't love you. And it's like, that's not true. That's Hollywood editing that everybody wants to feel that and it's an escape. You're actually in that world. So I would (laughs) love to hear your perspective. Let's backtrack a little bit. How did you get into Hollywood? 
Well, first of all, I just have to say my therapist is like, you pick the worst career for your addiction. <laughs> like, I was already an actor in my real life. Like, I was mask on top of mask on top of mask. So she said when I – I just never felt comfortable in my skin. Let's just put it blatantly. Like, when I was younger, I just always felt like I didn't quite fit in. Like, I kind of did, but then I didn't. I I was socially awkward. I was very shy. I was very sensitive. I feel things a lot. So I was already – and then coming from a broken home and not seeing how healthy communication looked like, that was just compounded. And then addiction running on my family. So the best way for me, I was like, well, the moment I did not have to feel like me – was like freedom. So I took a, a a theater class in high school and I'm dyslexic. So I was like, I'm not, I'm going to be horrible at this. But when I learned the lines and I went on stage and I got my first acting job, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it was almost a high in itself, like not being myself, putting on other people's clothes, being something else, acting out that drama, being addicted to drama. I think a lot of us in society are addicted to drama. And when it's just like normal, we're like, something's wrong. Like I need that high and that low and I need that fight with my partner so then we can passionately make up. And that is from television and film. And that's why I became an actress, to feel that all the time, the highs and the lows. But yeah, it's, it's I believe, on top of society, on top of social media, on top of movies and film and and even books, like we only talk about the falling in love part, the butterflies part. We don't talk about, you know, who's going to pick up the poop today? Who's going to pay that bill? Who's going to have a healthy argument that doesn't, you know, where you're attacking somebody because you're being triggered because they're triggering your little girl and you're triggering theirs and then you guys go at each other. So I completely agree. And I grew up with movies. So I, my mom was watching Dirty Dancing like a hundred times. She was obsessed (laughs) with Patrick Swayze. I saw Romeo and Juliet when I was way too young And I thought for someone to really love me, they should drink some poison or stab themselves for me. Like that is my concept of what true love looks like. And it's so messed up. It's so messed up. It's so true though. My sister and I were talking about, you know, the rom-coms. And so when you say bye to your boyfriend at the airport, you're like, is he going to run after me on the plane and give me one last kiss or, you know, set up a band to like confess his love for me. Bring a boom box. Exactly. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so warped like you said we just have this warped sense of reality and that's not to say I don't believe in romance I am like the biggest romantic person in the world I love romance but like you said it does not mean for somebody to love you they need to drink poison or run after you on the airplane every single time you leave them like that's just not reality so yeah it's just it's funny because I think a lot of people listening especially maybe in their 20s can relate to this of like why is the guy not bringing me roses? And, you know, we see the Kardashians. Travis Barker just proposed with like 40,000 roses on the beach. And you're like, why is that not my life? And (laughs) it's like, let's get to the reality of the situation. Like you just said, the triggering of the inner child, like that's going to happen in relationships. And you really do know how to deal with that. So can you walk us through your recovery? And Mm -hmm. I guess, actually, I don't want to get to recovery just yet. I want to get to... (laughs) how you even started to understand this is something I need help with. Like, what was the signal? Was it a moment and experience? Did someone say something to you? Well, my therapist did, you know, I told Mm. you, I, I, I had this moment where I was like, Oh my God, am I going to do it again? Am I going to like flirt with someone? Am I going to go outside of my relationship again? Like for the, the hundredth millionth time. And, and I remember when I went and saw my therapist, she said, The first thing she said, she said, you remind me of my other client that's a high-class prostitute. And I was like, "Um, I've never had a one-night. I like went off. I was like, I never had a one-night stand. I haven't had many sexual partners. I've never been paid for sex. And then I sat there and I was like, well, someone did buy me dinner once. And I really didn't want to do something, but I did it. And like, I then started like clicking in my head instead of like running out of the room and telling her to peace out after I was paying her all this money. And then she said at the end, oh, you have a secret and I know what it is finally. You're a sex and love addict. So to have a professional mirror that back for me, I don't think I would have ever got recovery. Mm. And I had that moment, like, 
I was, I had a boyfriend. I was like, I care about him as much as I can. If we weren't together, I'd want to be his friend. And it just hit me. Like, if I don't do this now, I'm going to be doing this the rest of my life. So I called my boyfriend driving home from the therapy group bawling my eyes out going like, I'm a sex and love addict. Like, and he had recovery for 20 years in AA and never heard about sex and love addiction. And I I was like, she has to tell me I have to go to sex and love addicts anonymous. And when I get home, he highlighted all the meetings I could go to. And I went to my first meeting deep in the Valley, 30 people, all completely different from me. And I write about this in chapter three, like, it's like an A-list celebrity, a CEO, a janitor, a school teacher, like every walk of life, every ethnicity, gender, everything. And I was sitting in the room and I just started bawling when they were talking because the first time in my life, I didn't realize I was broken or alone. I just thought I was missing that gene that could be completely committed to somebody that I could ever be satisfied by another person. And it just like, I I was home and that's what started my recovery. Wow. That is incredible. And I love that you pointed out it was all walks of life. It's not Mm -hmm. just Hollywood actors or people that are recovering and, um, excuse me, or people that are in your field, because that's something I think people are scared of is like, I'm not going to fit in. Even if I need help, there's going to be a certain group of people there that maybe I don't feel like I fit into. And I like that you're sharing what it was like because this might actually help someone go to their first meeting. Yeah, it literally was every single person you can imagine. Every age group, ethnicity, gender, race, religion, everything. It was the most. And then they were all saying something I've either done, wanted to do, said, thought about doing. You know what I mean? Like, And just to have, you know, him over there saying, I have trouble, you know, staying connected to my wife of 20 years. I have trouble, you know, staying stimulated during sex because I feel myself disconnecting. And it was just like everybody was talking to me. And it was just like, oh, I'm not broken. Yes, exactly. I love that you said I'm not broken. Like this is something I can actually work on and see progress with. I want to talk about the book because what's interesting is I know we've been referencing it, but Mm -hmm. it's actually not an autobiography necessarily or a memoir. You wrote about a main character called Roxanne. So can you walk us through, first of all, what prompted the book? And then why did you decide to not make it somewhat of an autobiography? Well, first I got pressured into doing it for my, <laughs> for my partner. He was like, Hey, there's this writing course. You should, you should take it. And I just was like, what are you talking about? I'm not a writer. I'm an actor. Give me the lines. Don't give me the word. you like, I'm not responsible for the words. And I was shooting Lucifer at the time. And he was just like, I really feel like you have this story to tell because at the same time I was pitching a show about sex and love addicts with my friend Jana Kramer, you know, who has come out as a love addict and was with a sex and sex and love addict. And, um, we were pitching the show, but it kept like going a different way than the stories I knew. And it was, it just wasn't like getting across what this is, like this authentic, what this life is. And he just kept pressuring me. And finally I said, I'll take the class. Like, fine. And I took it and the first draft was written as a memoir and I wrote it in the 45 days. And it just was like something bigger than me was like, you need to get these stories out for other people because something big happened when I got my 10 year chip in my program after a decade, like this need came because I saw all these younger people come in, 19 year olds, 20 year olds coming in saying, they are not connected. They are impotent. They don't know their sexuality. They have trouble connecting to other people. They don't understand dating. They're online too much. All these things. And I was like, oh my God, this younger generation is is struggling. Like it's an epidemic. And so I just felt like this is where I can be of service now. I'm not scared to share my recovery. I have 10 years. Anybody can say anything to me and it doesn't matter. Like it rolls off my back. So when I was doing the rewrites, I realized it it couldn't be a memoir because I would have to get permission for a lot of the stories, mm. the people in the stories, and I could get sued. <laughs> so to write it as authentic, I kept thinking, these are my stories, but they're other people's stories too. So I had dreams. I had other people's 
people I've worked with, their experiences in their recovery, I just kept putting it all in the book and it became this other person. And I didn't have a name for her. And I was listening to Pandora and all of a sudden the song Roxanne came on from Police. And I was like, oh my God, that's her name, Roxanne. So it follows Roxanne in her first year of recovery in sex and love addiction, her bottom. So Everything in there are parts of me and parts of other people, and you'll never know which story is mine, and timelines are changed, people's names are changed, but it really takes you through an addict's mind in the first year of recovery. You know, what you, you always look at an addict and you're like, wait, they just said they weren't going to do that. They just said they weren't going to text that person or go back to that person or whatever, and then they do it. And I want you to get in the mind of the addict and see why they do the things they do. And doing that, I wrote these 10 rules that can help you get out of your addiction to people, get out of your addiction to toxic relationships, and get back to yourself. So it was a journey. And then going through Hollywood, you know, I wrote all these Hollywood facts that no one knows about, what it's really like to be a working actor in Hollywood, not what, not what it's like to be an A-list celebrity, like how difficult it is just to make a living in this profession. I can't imagine all the stories that you've experienced or heard or seen. I mean, it's crazy. And I want to ask you a question and you can feel free not to answer, but we obviously saw the Me Too movement happen. And then Mm -hmm. Emily Ratajkowski just went on and um, call her daddy podcast and started talking about how people would just make constant comments about her body and how fuckable she was and, like that's how she got roles and that like all these things that had to do with sex and mm-hmm. you you know Hollywood kind of got this bad rep obviously in the last 5 years of I think people are scared to go into it because they're like am I going to turn into someone I don't want to turn into am I going to have to have sex with people I don't want to am I going to be objectified mm-hmm. and so I'm just curious in your experience like did do you think Hollywood fueled any of this sex and love addiction Um, Because you said your therapist did say, like, this is the worst actual place to be for you. But, you know, I do want to address that Hollywood and the sexual addiction and the the stuff that happens within the sexual field, um, they are intertwined. And people do wonder about, like, the dark side of Hollywood. Yeah, and that's why I wrote about it. You know, I have been objectified, but then I've also objectified other people, you know, and there is a lot of sex and love addiction in Hollywood because it's all about attention. It's all about validation. It's all about using your body and your face and going out there into the world and portraying a character. So it is very enmeshing. There's a power dynamic that happens 24-7 in Hollywood. And Unfortunately, yeah, our industry is surrounded by sex and love addicts. I used to be able, especially when I first got sober, I would go on set and I would be like, you're sleeping with the wardrobe person. You're cheating on your wife. You're doing that. Like I literally could diagnose everybody. Now I try to stay on my own side of the street and like, just keep to yourself, lady. Like, but yeah, the, it's it's an industry that amplifies sexuality and uses it as a commodity. And unfortunately, sometimes you are put in situations where it's hard to say no. And I write about that in the book, some moments that were really difficult to go back and look at where I was a victim. But then I I put it out there at the same time. I used that as a, a commodity, just like I'm sure Emily feels like a part of it was taken from her, but a part of it, her put it out there, you know? So I take responsibility for using my sexuality for power and control and manipulation doesn't mean I should be able to be a victim to somebody else and their illness. And when I was shooting six, and I don't talk about this a lot, but, you know, Harvey Weinstein was our executive producer. And fortunately, I never got in a position where I was alone with him or anything. I was always with the cast when, when we were around him. And I just thought about it. It's like he should be in the rooms, like my sex and love addicts. And he did go to sex rehab. But here's the difference. He hasn't take responsibility Mm. for his behavior. If he went out there in the world and said, hey, I use my power to use other people to get what I wanted. And that was wrong of me. I'm going to make amends to him. I'm going to make this right. I completely completely take responsibility for my behavior and it was inappropriate, I would have more sympathy for him. But he still finds himself the victim. And what I'm doing is saying, hey, listen, I know I've done this. I've done I've done bad shit. I've 
been immoral at times, just like everybody else, but it doesn't make me a bad person. And if I make amends for what I've done wrong and trying to make it right, then that's, you know, like I have forgiveness for people because we're all trying to survive in this world. Listen, he's probably broken. I'm broke. I was broken. Other people are broken. Hurt people hurt people. And we use other people as a form of drug. So where in your life are you using someone else to fill you, to give you that worth, to give you that validation? That was the longest answer ever, but it's so complicated. (laughs) It is complicated, and it's obviously a loaded question, but I thought it was Mm -hmm. worth addressing because I know when people hear, oh, Brianna's a sex and love addict in Hollywood, they're wondering, well, what was going on, you know, behind the scenes, on those on the sets and with the cast and da-da-da, because I'm curious, and it's interesting that you brought up the whole whole concept of responsibility and accountability. People do Mm -hmm. forgive people that take 100% responsibility, and I think that's, I, I just did an episode recently about getting canceled. This is like kind of a weird left turn, but a lot of people no, don't want to start true. a you podcast. Yeah. yeah. They don't want to start a podcast or write a book or put themselves out there. Cause like, I don't want to get canceled. And I'm like, I don't think you can get quote unquote canceled. If you take responsibility and accountability and try to right your wrongs and say, I am so sorry, here's what I'm going to do to correct it. And then continue with that behavior not just you know put a band-aid on it and then hope keep doing the same exact thing but it's interesting that you are saying exactly what you did wrong and you took responsibility you're not blaming 20 other people and then continuing to do the same thing every day yeah because listen I was sexually traumatized as a a kid um I write about it in the book that was really difficult to write about I have been in the industry also but it doesn't make me give me the excuse to go out and hurt people in the world. And that's why I wrote the book too. It's my way of that ripple effect. So when I would like hurt somebody I was with, then when we broke up, they'd go and hurt somebody else because I hurt them. And it's that ripple effect. And when I made my amends, I really saw how bad the ripple effect was. Like I was like, holy shit, I'm a shitty person. Like I've done some shitty things to people. But now my ripple effect is – I want, if I can help one person not go into a relationship broken, hurting somebody else, then I've done a different ripple effect. And I was just willing at 10 years after recovery to say, hey, this is me. But I do have to tell you, a part of me, the morning it was coming out that I wrote this Huff Post article and then the book was coming out, it's like, oh my God, am I like going to blow up my career? Is no one going to hire me again? Cause they're going to know I'm a sex and love addict that they think I'm going to go on set and try to like sleep with everybody and create drama. You know, like there was still that stigma and shame that I didn't realize I was holding a little bit of and not living that complete truth. And when the book came out and everything, I'm like, whatever, you know, like I own responsibility for who I am. Oh yeah. I definitely want to talk about the shame piece because yeah. that is something that so many of us deal with, but I imagine even more so when you, again, Sex and Love Addict, in my opinion, isn't the most flattering title on earth the to, worst. Yeah, to have. <laughs> no, it is. People are still, are are okay of you being a drunk or an, an alcoholic or or um, do drugs. But when right. you say they're, you're a sex and love addict, they're like, what? No. I think like, you know it, what it is. unacceptable. I, I, it just clicked with me. I think because it sounds like you could be predatory where even though you could do the same thing on drugs and, and Mm -hmm. drinking, I think people automatically assume you're a sexual predator. So that's why I think, I wonder if that's where the negative connotation comes from, even though it's not true. Yeah. Well, here's the thing under any chemical addiction, there's usually a sex and love addict. I mean, we have people come in with 30 years in AA, you know, saying I have been dreading coming to this room. They call it the PhD of all the programs because underneath the addiction, underneath the eating, the money, Netflix, whatever, is usually relationships and trauma Mm -hmm. in the past. And that's sex and love addiction, you know? So, when you get rid of that addiction, there's the other one underneath it. I mean, we had a guy come in that said, I can get off heroin, but I can't let her go. Wow. Like it's more, it was easier to stop doing heroin than to stop his horrible, toxic relationships. But that predator side you were talking about, it's not, I don't even know if it's that all the time. I think people want to glamorize this addiction. Mm. Every song you think about is unrequited love, getting your ex back, 
you know, cheating on an ex, any movie, it's like this yearning to like make this person love you. So I think our society glamorizes love addiction, glamorizes using your sexuality. Definitely social media does it. And I'm even, you know, I put up sexy pictures, you know, and liked how many likes I got. Like I'm not immune to it, but it's like, I think we glamorize it. And then especially as a woman, People have said to me and say all the time, man, I wish I would have met you when you were acting out. Mm. And I'm like, that it is not hot, quote unquote, hot to use people. <laughs> like, I, it's mind boggling that they think that's sexy. And then a man being like a man whore or be having a, a bigger, you know, um, testosterone, like that's attractive. It's like, no, it's not. You're actually not living in the real world. You're constantly trying to get off and not be just be in your body. Wow. Yeah. That is, that's really interesting to Mm -hmm. talk about being in the body too. And I want to get to that in a second, but to, to circle back to shame, that is such Mm -hmm. a hard emotion or feeling to get rid of. Do you feel like you worked through letting go of some of the shame or what tools or tips would you give to people that are struggling with that? Well, first of all, you have to do the work. Like I couldn't have spoke out after a year of recovery, after two years, five years, seven years, eight years. If I had to do the healing inside before you go out into the world and say, hey, I had this, hey, this happened to me, hey, blah, blah, blah. You have to do that inner work to heal yourself because that's what actually gets rid of the shame. But there is something about finally speaking up and say, I went through this or this has happened to me or I did this and now I'm on the other side of it and I've cleaned up house and I'm a different person and I'm back to my core self, that there's something that happens when you share those secrets, when you share those things that it heals you even more because you're living in your truth. And that's why I did my podcast, Secret Life of a Secret Life Podcast. Like because I when I came out with Huff Post. That morning, I kid you not, I told you, I thought the world was ending. Like, I was like, oh my God, people are never like, I'm ruining everything. And then two hours went by and nothing happened. Like, (laughs) it was like such an ego check. Like, humble yourself, lady. You're a worker among workers. No one cares. (laughs) But what did happen is that last bit of stigma and shame. You know, that last little bit that I didn't realize I still had just evaporated. And it was like anybody could say anything to me and it didn't, it didn't rock my core. So it takes time to get rid of that shame. Be gentle with yourself. Be kind to yourself. Understand that you were in survival mode, whether you did it to other people or you allowed it done to yourself. That shame is what kills us and you have to heal it to release it. You cannot run from it. And that's what I was doing for so long. I'd go and hurt somebody. Something would happen to me. And then I'd run from it trying to like fill that hole. Like, so I didn't have to feel it and you have mm. to feel it. The The road to recovery reminds me a lot of the road of dealing with grief of like, you think you're done with it. And then it out of nowhere, it kind of hits you with this pang and you're like, I thought I was done with this. So yes. on your recovery journey, did you ever feel like I got this? I'm on my way forward. Like we're, I can't wait to like show the world a new me. And then did you backslide at any moment? And how did that feel? I mean, the road to recovery is that onion. I mean, they say they've said it for however, when a started, it's that onion, you just peel each layer and you think you're done. You know, when I got through my nine months of withdrawal in this program, which was, I cried every day for nine months, I wanted to crawl out of my skin. And I really talk about that in the book in chapter, you know, two, three, and four, how brutal it is. And I I didn't have any guy friends. I stopped flirting. I didn't even look at any men in the eyes because I realized I was always putting out that energy, like flirt with me, give me attention. Let me walk down the street and have you tell me how awesome I am. Like it was ridiculous. And that withdrawal was brutal. Like I did not feel like I was going to survive. So when I ended that, I was like, oh, I got this. And then it's like, oh, no, no, now here's the real work. Now you have to look back at the why. You have to look at what you've done wrong. You have to make amends. You have to look at your character defects. You have to say you're sorry immediately, which is the hardest thing for me. And then you have to like meditate, turn it over to something bigger than you, then go be of service to other people. And it's like, ew, who wants to do that? Like, 
it's eye for an eye. It's like, especially in Hollywood, but it was like, I had to go through all those steps that took years. It took me nine years to do my 12 steps. And I don't recommend that for anyone. And then when I hit 10 years and doing the book and the podcast and articles, I then went through another layer of letting my ego go and knowing it's not about me. Like anything I do now, if I make it about me, I'm back to my disease. I'm spiritually sick. Like it, my ego will take over and then I will start kind of flirting or doing Mm -hmm. something just a little not right or disconnecting from my son or something like that, where uh, being on Netflix too long, going on social media too long, you know? So there's all these things that takes time to do that healing and to get him to that next layer, that next layer surrender, that next layer of just being with myself and okay, exactly where I am, what I have, what I've done, and that's okay. That's really It's exhausting. Uh, yeah, that you actually <laughs> laid out the timeline though, because- I know personally, you know, I'm like, I want to fix this thing in two weeks. I want to get my, you know, yeah, yeah. I want (laughs) to get my finances in order by next Friday. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. There's layers of stuff behind this. We can't just jump. Um, And it reminds me of a a podcast I also did recently that you're illustrating perfectly is like, stop trying to quantum leap because you're Mm -hmm. missing all the, the steps needed, the baby steps to work through to get to that point. Like if you just quantum leap to being this new person who knows if you would have shed all those different layers you might have missed you're not going to important. you're yeah. not I have not seen anyone and I'm talking people that have like a list everything you could ever dream of that they thought if they had those things if they had that partner if they had those children whatever it will come back and get you you cannot skip steps in healing. I don't care who you are or how much money you have. You cannot do it. You have to. And that's why I say walk through the fire and let that shit burn. Mm. Let your entire psyche, belief system, the person you think you are just burn up in flames and willing to jump off that, like leap off into the unknown and not knowing who's going to be on the other side is the most terrifying thing in the world, but you can't skip that step. It's impossible. The ego is something that you brought up too, which is, it reminds me of this. The ego does not like to wait and wait and wait. And Mm -mm. like, even the, like you said, burning it down means your life could change. You could be surrounded by different people after this fire has died down. So I'm curious, how did your life change as you started working through recovery? Like your inner circle, your family? Everything. Everything changes because you start setting boundaries. You have things you won't put up with anymore. You want to show up for people completely. So then you look and see like, oh, that person doesn't show up for me. That one doesn't return my text. That ghosts me. That love bombs me and then ghosts me. And it's like, so every friendship changed. Either they grew with me or left. Every family member, I mean, I talk about in the book, you know, my father and I've had a very difficult relationship and a year we did not speak because he would not keep my boundary. It was very emotionally incestuous is how you describe it, where like a father or a parent can use their child to be their partner or like fill their needs, you know, so it was a lot of growth for him and I, and we have a great, better relationship now. You know, it still has its bumps, but it's so much better. You know, my mom and I, our whole relationship changed. My sister and my relationship changed. And then, you know, the boyfriend that highlighted all those meetings I'm married to today. So it's not like I got this recovery and then found the perfect partner. I got this recovery and found myself. So you don't go into it looking for someone to fix you. You fix yourself and then you realize, do I want to be with this person? Do I want to make a life with this person? Does this person make me a better person? Would I want to be friends with them? That's the main question. If you do not want to be friends with your partner, huge warning sign, like that's a huge deal. And we grew together. You know, he got more recovery. I got more recovery. We didn't have sex for the first year of my recovery. 
we lived together. So that, and I was willing to let go of him and he was willing to let go of me for me to get healthy. So I think it's like not holding on to anybody and, and stepping back and saying, this is what I need in my life. These are the relationships I want. This is the person I want to be. And if you want to stick around, stick with me. If not, that's okay too. And I don't have any resentment on anybody leaving. Yeah, you have such an interesting perspective because like we said, you've been in Hollywood, you've seen all the Hollywood movies, and then you actually got to experience a real adult emotionally and uh, romantically fulfilling relationship. Can you tell us some lessons, especially I'm thinking of like my younger sister and like who Mm -hmm. I was when I was 25 of what is the difference between the Hollywood movies and the real adult relationships? Like, let's say pick three things that are just not true from the movies. Okay. Well, the number one thing is you are not going to keep the same passion that you have at the same, at the beginning of the relationship after being together 17 years. It's not possible. So anytime I find someone I'm attracted to outside in the world, I think, oh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And then we're going to actually have conversations about how to pay the bills, how to pick up the dog poop. Like I said, how to like have intimacy where it's not like a fantasy, you know? So I know that if I'm going to make a relationship work, you have to put in the effort. You have to put in over communicating. You have to put in when you're triggered by somebody, you have to have those hard conversations. I think people are scared to have those hard conversations about money, about religion, about how to raise a child. I mean, we have a three and a half year old son right now, and we cannot imagine if we didn't have recovery, how hard it is to have a kid and how to have a healthy relationship, and how to fight fairly. There is fighting. In Hollywood, you only see that dramatic fighting, and then they fuck afterwards. You know that whole scene. But how do you fight healthily? How do you fight and have a conversation where things are getting heated, but you don't hurt each other? So it's like those things are not taught. I think they should have a class. How do you do your finances, and how do you have healthy tools in relationships? And I think it's just like, Those things have now helped me understand how to be a better partner, but then to also do self-care. Like I do so much self-care as a mom and as a wife. I do meetings in the morning. I keep my commitments to friends. I have my own goals, you know, things that are important to me. If I need to go like take a bath or take care of myself or go have a date by myself, I should be able to do those things in a, in a relationship. And I don't think they teach those. And if I was, if you are younger, please don't keep looking for someone to complete you. It will never happen. There is no such thing as a soulmate. You are your own fucking soulmate is what my message is. Oh, I love that. That is like (laughs) the audio clip for sure. You are your own soulmate. It's so true because, like I said, that's the way Hollywood portrays it. The damsel in distress, the princess waiting for the prince. If they just kiss, then she'll come to life. And it's like, you actually think about it. We've been served this stuff since we were like three years old. No wonder we have so many warped ideas of what an actual healthy adult relationship is. Yeah. We're two people. We're two equal people walking on this planet. We bring out the best in each other but we're two separate people. I always thought relationships had to be enmeshed. Mm. Like you had to be all consuming and it's you guys. Yes, you are partners against this world, but you're two separate people and you bring out the best in each other. Yeah. It reminds me of, I always think of it as like computer systems. It's like computer systems are so complex. They have different programs, different softwares. So it's like, you're a computer system. Your partner's a computer system. And all of a sudden you're trying to make like 75 wires cross. And it's like, the computer would blow up if every single one of them you were trying to make it work. It's like, let's start by connecting. Okay, yeah, this thing works. This this one works. Maybe this doesn't. So we're going to do this separately. And I like that you mentioned that you're not all consumed. And mm-hmm. you know, your partner is not the goal. It's actually no. just a, a nice it's an addition to your life. He could leave me. He could leave me today. Like, And I would be upset and go through my grieving process, but I wouldn't be devastated and not thinking I could live. I don't need him. I want him. There's a difference. He Mm -hmm. does not complete me in any way. And I think think that's the key to a healthy relationship. I love that. 
Well, I want to end with some, some let's say, juicy stories from the book. Ooh. Because okay. I know you mentioned that we don't know if it's your story or someone else's story. So obviously these are anonymous. But yes. one of them was about being mistaken for a prostitute at the Hotel Bel Air. Can yes. you just walk us through this story specifically? Oh, my God. I love that story. Well, it happened after, you know, a 30th birthday. Like, you just had your 30th birthday. And it's like that night where everything just goes shit show and a fuck factory wrong. And you are at the lowest of your low. And then you find yourself in the company of a very handsome stranger. And you make the decision to say, okay, whatever. I don't know your name. And it happens in a Hotel Bel Air and it's really juicy and in the morning and you wake up and the person there is not there anymore and they leave you money instead. And and yeah, that, that wow. was a very low point for, for Roxanne, for sure. <laughs> Roxanne has some wild stories and I love how yeah. you described it as, it's like as if Sex in the City Samantha was an addict and her drug of choice was men that's mm-hmm. who Roxanne kind of starts out as. But then throughout the book, she goes through the journey of recovery and actually getting closer to those healthy relationships and self-love. So yes. what what can readers expect? We already talked about the juicy stories and what it's about, but is there anything else that you want them to get out of this book? Yeah, I really want them to be educated about sex and love addiction. And that the beautiful thing is almost everybody reads it like 99% of the time and say, oh my God, I've done that. Or I know a friend that done that or any of those things. And that's the point. Like I want to educate about this addiction and help people, but in an entertaining way, because every book I read about sex and love addiction, sex addiction, love addiction is so dark. It's so depressing. You read a page and you just want to like throw up and it's like, so clinical at times. And so I just want to take people on a journey. So it's like, I wrote it like a TV show or a movie where it's like, Mm. you follow her looking back on this year of recovery and all the shit she went through and her inner dialogue. And you're in the mind of Roxanne getting to like ride the roller coaster of emotion and the downfalls and, and the heartache, but then the funny, hilarious moment she has with cool girl and superstar and like, tattoo girl and all this, but at the end, she really finds herself. So it's a self-help book. I wrote 10 rules that you can live by that can help you today, which I use all the time. So I just really wanted to make it something where someone can be entertained, informed, and also help them heal. I love that. Where can everybody find this book and connect with you? Yeah. So please go to Amazon. It's Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. You can get the audio book, which I had to narrate, which was torture, pure <laughs> torture. So enjoy it. Um, the ebook, the paperback, the hardback, all that. And then you can follow me on Instagram at the Brianne Davis. I try to answer all my DMs. I try to send out if people want meeting information or more, more articles or things that can help them. If you're with a sex and love addict or a sex and love addict yourself, I just really try to be of service. So I answer all of them or TikTok at the dot Brianne Davis. I try to do little skits that help people like understand sex and love addiction in an easy way. Oh, I love that. Well, we'll put all this in the show notes. And I love that you're such a resource for anybody going through this because I know this is something probably not super easy to come to terms with. But thankfully, we have people like you in the world who are so open about how you can recover. And I hope this at least prompts people to explore themselves and do some self-reflection. Please. It's the best thing I've ever done. Better than getting married, having a kid, having my career, money in the bank, everything is the best thing. And here's the thing. Nobody can take it away from me. Mm. Nobody can ever take this healing away from me. So if you're struggling out there, if you're in toxic relationships, if you find yourself always looking for that person, please know that you are not alone. There is millions and millions of us and there is a way out. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Brianne. This has been such an incredible conversation. I've loved having you on. Thanks for having me. What an episode, huh? I feel like it went all over the place, but I was really honestly looking forward to learning about this because I've heard about celebrities having sex and love addiction, but I haven't actually talked to anybody about it. And like I said, I was a bit skeptical when we first connected. So I'm glad that we actually had a full hour long conversation and that you got to know Brienne, you got to learn about her book and be sure to check it out. 
You can find it on Amazon. Again, The Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, A Seductively Wild Ride to Self-Love. The link is in the show notes. And if you found this episode valuable or you love the show in general, consider leaving a review because A, it is a podcaster's love language and B, it just helps the show so much. It helps me book incredible guests like this. And guess what? There is a giveaway this month. If you leave a review, send it to me, info at chelsearife.com or DM me at chelsearife and go follow Curious Elixirs on Instagram, you will be entered into a giveaway to win a variety pack of Curious Elixirs. So again, all you need to do is write a review and then send it to info at chelsearife.com or DM me at chelsearife. I would actually suggest screenshotting it before you hit submit because for some reason, Apple reviews take forever to show up and I wanna make sure that you get entered into this giveaway. Just so you know, Spotify right now doesn't have the option for written reviews, and this giveaway is not for the ratings. It's actually for a written review. So once you write that review, send it over to me. I'll put you into the giveaway and also show that you followed Curious Elixirs so you can be added into the giveaway. And then I'll pull a winner and you can win a whole variety pack and understand why I've been loving them and why it's been so easy for me to cut back on drinking because that whole ritual of me holding something and enjoying something tasty is still there. I think you're going to love number four. That's become my new favorite. And I don't know, honestly, number two is really good too. If you want to go ahead and just check them out now, the link is in my show notes and you can get $10 off your first order of $50 or more. Again, head to the link in my show notes and leave a review and you can win a freaking variety pack so you can try all of them. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, this month is March Madness. So you're getting two episodes a week. Buckle up. It's going to be a wild ride and I will see you next week.